Welcome to the Paleo View. I'm Stacy Toth, best-selling author and co-creator of PaleoParents.com, where we focus on real-life solutions for families seeking help. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times best-selling author and creator of the PaleoMom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Welcome back, listeners. Yet again, we are here. Um, and this week, it's not just you and I, Sarah. We we have not been doing a lot of guests lately. And so it's pretty exciting that we have not just any guest, but a pretty excellent guest who's back for a repeat wait, wait, performance. Wait. Are, you saying, are you saying you're tired of talking to just me? Maybe. But also, you <laughs> hung up on me earlier, so it's not a one-way <laughs> that street. That was Skype. That had I did not touch anything. I promise. There's no way for me to prove this whatsoever. <laughs> right? It'll have to be my word against Skype's. But we do have a very exciting guest. I am I am really excited uh, because our guest today is one of uh, just my favorite people in the paleo movement. Uh, he's a thought leader, um, and I he's uh, a person who is always everything he says is completely grounded in science and just logic. And um, just a little bit of like, can everyone just calm down kind of overall <laughs> voice? And that is something that I think is so important in this community right now. So welcome, Chris Kresser. Thank you for coming back on the podcast. Thank you, Sarah and Stacy, for the very gracious introduction. I hope I can live up to it. And it's always a pleasure to be with you both. Well, if you get hysterical and start ranting and raving about non-sciencey things, all of my intro will have been proven wrong. That seems <laughs> unlikely, but we'll, we'll see. But we'll I've see. been waiting for over five years for someone to prove Sarah wrong in some capacity. So <laughs> you'll have my thumbs up. All right. I'll, maybe I'll give it an extra try then. I am not going to say anything now that could be possibly. <laughs> yeah, no. That's, all right. That's, that's going to go. Well, Chris, you have joined us uh, this week in particular of all times because you have a new book coming out and we would love for you to talk a little bit about that. Um, I think it's a really interesting new approach to what people might think of. Um, you know, they've they've heard endlessly about uh, paleo books or whatever the case may be. And I think we've we've got a completely different approach here, which I think is is fantastic. And if maybe I could just kind of give people a little um, why Sarah and I are big fans of yours, for those of you who might not know, um, Chris's can be found at chriscresser.com. And he has been practicing functional medicine for as long as I've been part of paleo. I guess you can tell us more about your bio. And I first found you through Rob Wolf's podcast, um, which at the time you totally called him out on fish oil. Fish oil podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that one. And I was like, I love that this guy just called him out. And what I loved even more was that Rob Wolf was like, this is really legit information you're sharing with me. I'm going to look into it. And then he actually changed his recommendations based on it. And that was one of the reasons that I personally um, found paleo to be something that I really respected because I looked at two thought leaders and neither one of them were totally stuck on 
what the concepts were that they were preaching and um, were able to admit kind of, oh, well, this thing that I've been recommending isn't the right thing. Do this other thing. So um, anyway, that's kind of my background. And that was at least, I don't know, six oh, years ago six or years something. Ago? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was a good while ago now. Yes. Um, anyway, so why don't you tell us what you've <laughs> been up to since I know you, you actually <laughs> published a book earlier and you were on our podcast, so I don't think we need to go back into mm-hmm. that. Matt can put that no. previous episode in the show notes, but kind of I mean what you've been up to lately and what your kind of current, um, focus is on would be fantastic just to kind of catch up. Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks again for that. Um, so my first book was really about taking back your own health, but this book is about taking back health care. Um, I think my my progression over time has been first dealing with my own complex chronic illness and then realizing that what I learned in that process could help other people. And so, you know, going back to school to study uh, to formalize that and, you know, opening a practice where I was treating patients individually and then at some point I realized well, this is fantastic and I want to continue to do this work, but the number of people that I can impact in a, on a one, you know, in a one-on-one fashion is, is limited. Um, you know, even if I hire additional clinicians uh, to work at the clinic, which we have, we're now up to five clinicians, a nurse practitioner, uh, health coach, and two nutritionists at the clinic. We've so we've we've grown considerably, tripled in size in the past three years alone. Still, you know, it's limited, right? And it will always be limited. And so I realized that the biggest impact I could make would would be to train healthcare practitioners in the approach that I use. And so uh, a couple of years ago, I launched Cresser Institute in order to do that. And we've trained almost 400 clinicians from all over the world in functional medicine and ancestral diet and lifestyle and a collaborative practice model. Um, but then I realized, uh, you know, in, in doing that work that this uh, message needs to get out on a much broader scale. Uh, and I, I started to think on a more societal or even global level in terms of the threat of chronic disease, uh, um, more so even than, you know, more than the individual level, more than the sort of community level and more than even the practitioner level. I started to think about it in terms of social change uh, that needs to happen because um, the, the truth is chronic disease really threatens not only to erode our quality of life, and to shorten our lifespan, which it most definitely is, it actually threatens to completely destroy the fabric of our society and bankrupt us as a government. Um, if, if things continue at their current pace, the U.S. is 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 projected to be financially insolvent by the year 2035, which is in most of the people who are listening to the show's lifetime. <laughs> so that means we might not even we're, have a working co- lifetime, not even not even like lifetime, lifetime. Like, Absolutely. Like, retirement. Lifetime. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So so we're actually uh, I mean, this might sound overly dramatic, but I don't think it is. We're actually talking about the very survival of our country and the health of, of future generations. So when I began to realize that it was, you know, that, that big of a deal, um, I felt like I needed to do something to, um, get this message out on a wider scale. And, and, you know, I still think a book is the best way to do that. So here we are. 
So the book is called Unconventional Medicine. I don't know if you actually said that. And it comes out. I'm just going to add the plug for you. I'm terrible at that. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It has a title. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, It's called Unconventional Medicine, and it comes out November 7th, uh, which means it's book twins with my book. Um, oh, what? Cool. When is your, yeah. is, is it literally the same day? Literally the same day. Wow. I didn't even yeah. know that. <laughs> so, um, so, and I, I do want to encourage our listeners to go get it. Even, uh, you know, I think it has really great information in it for both the practitioner and the patient. Like, I think it really pulls those people together and kind of gets um, everyone on the same page. So I definitely recommend our listeners uh, go pre-order because as they've heard me saying for last month, pre-orders are really important. Um, Go pre-order. And I noticed it's on sale on Amazon. uh, So it's also a great price. And uh, we'll definitely put links in the show notes uh, for anyone who wants to sort of bookmark this for later. But um, I did kind of want to go back and talk to you, Chris, while we have you on the show, about functional medicine in general, because I think this is still a concept that feels very foreign for people who have only ever gone to see a doctor when they've felt sick. Um, right. And and this idea of even just preventative medicine beyond your doctor saying, oh, you should eat healthy and exercise, right? Like there's this, you know, 30 second soundbite of what that might actually be. And then you're sent on your merry way and you don't see your doctor again, unless you're doing a yearly physical or you, you have some kind of illness or some kind of symptoms that are, you know, undiagnosed and and you're feeling terrible. And I think the, you know, I've been working with a functional medicine specialist for about four years and it's been the thing that, that got me that extra, like diet and lifestyle changes made a huge difference in my health, but it didn't make me all the way better. It didn't take me to the place I wanted to be. And it was functional medicine that took me the rest of the way. And so it's something I feel very passionately about personally as a um, medical model. And I, I would like to just kind of take a step back and have you maybe share how you got into functional medicine in the first place while also taking the opportunity to define what that approach is. Sure. Yeah, so I got very sick in my early 20s. Uh, I was traveling around the world and I was on a small island in Indonesia and I got uh, multiple parasite infections simultaneously, which took me to the curb. Um, And while I recovered uh, somewhat quickly from the acute effects of that illness, it it really evolved into a decade-long journey back to health. And uh, Along the way, I learned um, in in a painful, repetitive fashion that conventional medicine was really not set up to deal with chronic, complex, multi-system illness. Um, you know, our medical model evolved during a time when the top challenges that we faced were all acute problems like infection or uh, trauma or emergency Back in 1900, the top three causes of death uh, were typhoid, tuberculosis, and pneumonia, all acute infectious diseases. And other reasons that people would go see a doctor were also acute, like a broken bone or an appendicitis or a gallbladder attack. And treatment was pretty pretty straightforward. You know, is the doctor put the bone in a cast or would remove the appendix or, or the gallbladder and then later, once antibiotics were developed, would prescribe an antibiotic. One, one problem, one doctor, one treatment, right? 
Um, but fast forward to today, it's it's a totally different landscape. The the seven of the ten top causes of death are chronic disease, and 86% of our healthcare dollars go toward treating chronic disease. And then when you have somebody like me who's got um, really complex presentation and and chronic problem that doesn't lend itself well to that one problem, one doctor, one treatment approach. They don't. They just don't know what to do, and it's not an issue with individual doctors. Almost every doctor I saw along the way was a caring person who really did their best to help. It's just that they didn't have the resources or tools or even the perspective or the paradigm to um, to be able to help me. So, you know, functional medicine is a systems biology approach to treating disease and. Uh, you know, when I talk about it to people who aren't familiar with it, I like to use an analogy just to make it simple. So if you have a rock in your shoe and it's making your foot hurt, in the conventional model, you get a, a diagnosis of foot pain. Actually, they would make it sound fancier than that, but essentially it would, <laughs> it would, be, it would be telling you that it would say foot pain, but it would use probably a Latin word for foot. You know, diatritis. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dolores or something, <laughs> and and then um, you would be prescribed a, a painkiller of some kind, um, ibuprofen, and certainly that would uh, help with the pain, but wouldn't it be better to just take off your shoe and dump out the rock? And that's really what functional medicine is in a nutshell. It's a, it's a, it's a process that is designed to get to the root cause of disease rather than just suppressing symptoms with drugs, which is the focus of the conventional model. And that leads to much more effective and longer-lasting treatments and actually creates the potential for a cure rather than creating patients for life. So let's use an example. If you go to the doctor and you have high blood pressure or you have high cholesterol, what's going to happen? You're oh, gonna they're going get... to wanna, they're gonna wanna put, on, put you on a statin right away. Right. You'll, you'll be on a statin or you'll be on a, a, a blood pressure medication. And if you ask the doctor how long you have, you, you're going to be taking that drug, what will they say? They'll say the rest of your life. That's exactly right. <laughs> so, we did not script this ahead of time, guys, no, by the way. we didn't. <laughs> we didn't. This was not pre-planned. And, and I'm sure everyone out who's listening yeah. answered the same. same. You know, everybody, everybody knows the deal. So um, that creates patients for life, right? It, it creates a situation where people are taking medications to suppress symptoms for the rest of their life. And then inevitably what happens? You know, the blood pressure medication that they're taking causes other symptoms or side effects. Um, and then you go to the doctor and you complain about those side effects and what, what, what happens? You get prescribed another drug to deal with those side effects and then you get on this treadmill which explains why you know uh, uh, i forget the exact statistic but i think um 40 of people over 65 years of age are taking five or more medications you know it it just gets to be ridiculous and uh, it doesn't have to be this way and this is the promise of functional medicine where we look if we go back to that same example, if a patient comes in to see me and they have high blood pressure and or high cholesterol, the first question I'm going to ask is why? <laughs> you know, it's not normal for blood pressure or cholesterol to be really high. It's it's not how our bodies are designed. So we have to ask why. And 
Then we look to diet and lifestyle and behavior. That's always the starting place um, because those are the primary drivers of, of chronic disease. And then from there, if that's not enough, as you were saying in the introduction, Sarah, sometimes we need to look at other uh, pathologies, you know, which are mechanisms that give rise to disease, and we can address those. And so we approach it instead of from the outside in, starting with the symptoms and, and suppressing those to help a patient manage a disease after it's already occurred. We start from the inside out where we look at the diet, lifestyle, behavior, and the pathologies, and then we address those so that the patient can get well and stay well without taking unnecessary drugs for the rest of their life. So that's, that's kind of functional medicine in a nutshell. So I think the question – sorry, Stacey. Can I ask one more question? No, you before ju- you – no, because you're going to change the topic, Sarah. Mm. Not, <laughs> so I think what's fascinating is earlier today I actually went to an actual doctor for a foot problem. I, oh, that's so awesome. Twisted. <laughs> so great. I, I twisted no, I my ankle. Yeah, Not no, awesome that you have a foot problem, but yes. awesome that – Unfortunately, yeah. I couldn't just take the rock out of my shoe. Um, but I, I twisted my ankle they, yesterday on a farm. Did you have podiatritis? They- no, it's, okay. um, I mean, it was foot pain. Yeah. But you know, what's interesting is I don't go to a regular, well, I don't go to any doctor regularly. I'll just, I don't yeah. really see anyone functionally or, um, conventionally. I just, I see functional when I need to essentially. So, um, yeah. and, uh, so anyway, so I was talking to the doctor and the doctor's like, well, are you taking any medication? I was like, no, he's like, no, I mean like, you know, Medicaid, <laughs> you know, like, a, are you taking right. something daily? I'm like, like anything like Advil, you know, anything. No. And he's like, yeah. well, um, here I am like with this foot that, um, is, you know, like potentially broken. Um, it ends up being a sprain and he, he's like, okay, well what kind of, you know, pain medication are you on? And I'm like, well, I have autoimmune diseases, so I don't like taking anything if I don't really need to, I've just been icing it. And they look at me <laughs> Like I've got a third it's alien. Head. Yes. Yeah. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and it was, right. it was kind of a good reminder that, you know, some, some people, I guess the majority of people, if that's the expected response are jumping on that kind of stuff. And Sarah and I talk about all the time. These are life-saving techniques that we are fortunate to have. And um, there was a period of time where, when you look at like the chronologic uh, chronology of human life, where we had an optimized lifespan because it incorporated healthy lifestyle and living ac- active lifestyle, so to speak, and not yet modern processed foods. And it also had integrated things like soap and not drinking from places where we put our bodily fluids um Mm -hmm. and that made like such a huge difference in the in the lifespan of humans and yet now we're on this decline and i think what is really interesting to me is this idea of more and more conventional doctors starting to see the same thing and i don't know if it's just the bubble that i'm in but i know personally in my life several doctors, MDs, who are paleo or who adopt it. And I don't know if you know um, uh, Tribe Beyond Blessed, who 
used to be, oh my goodness, I can't remember their name. But anyway, Anthony and Katrina are both MDs. And so, and they live in the DC area and I'm with them pretty frequently. And it's fascinating to hear a doctor's perspective on the expectations of, you know, most patients and what they're willing to even hear or be open to. And I think, I know Sarah has another kind of follow-on question, but I, I guess I kind of wanted to open Pandora's box because as you look at training more conventional medicine doctors into learning some of the functional approach, um, which I think is is really kind of ultimately what the book aims to do is to, you know, help people figure out ways to remove the rock before giving pain medication. Um, The question is really, are, you know, are people ready to even hear that from their doctors? Because Mm -hmm. I know when I go to, you know, the kids doctors, it says, right on the sign, like, you don't need antibiotics for a cold, (laughs) you know, like, even the doctors are telling you that, but people are still asking for it, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. I mean, so there, that's a great question. There are a lot of ways uh, to answer that. So one is that um, in the, in the book, I advocate for a model with three components. One is functional medicine, which we talked about. Two is an ancestral diet and lifestyle, which I know you've talked about a lot on your show. Uh, and you both advocate. And three is a collaborative practice model. And that's that piece actually addresses your question, Stacy, because um, what we know now is that information is not enough to promote behavior change in all but a small percentage of the population. And we're talking about a single digit percentage and a, probably a very low single digit percentage. Which, what I mean by that is uh, if you just telling someone what to do, it's not going to work in the vast majority of cases. Uh, that's not how behavior change works. We have lots of research now on behavior change that, that, and, and how to actually facilitate that in people that, that shows that they need more support, uh, in most cases. So if a doctor just says, Hey, you need to eat better, uh, patient's going to leave the office and do nothing. But if the doctor, you know, if you, going back to our example of high cholesterol, if you went to the doctor and the doctor said, okay, you've got high cholesterol and uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set you up with a health coach and they're going to, you know, come to your house and do a pantry clean out and they're going to take you to the grocery store and show you how to buy these good foods and give you some recipes and meal plans and help you get started cooking there. And then we're going to... Um, set you up with a gym membership and, and a trainer at the gym. They're going to help you, you know, adopt an exercise plan and your insurance company is going to pay for all of this. <laughs> that would be a totally different scenario than it is now where the doctor just happens to mention, you know, follow a healthy diet and lifestyle. And then there's absolutely no support provided for that in the the system. And there's no reimbursement provided for that. So that's, that's number one. Number two is in the same way that we've trained doctors to focus on suppressing symptoms with drugs, we've trained patients to expect that too. Um, We're the only country other than New Zealand in the whole world that allows direct-to-consumer drug advertising. And the result of that has been that patients will often show up at the doctor asking for certain drugs that aren't even appropriate for their condition. And uh, research has shown that a lot of times doctors will eventually just cave in and prescribe them because the patient just, you know, badgers them until they do. And so the change needs to happen on a lot of different levels. And I'm, I'm certainly not arguing that this is going to happen overnight, 
But I am arguing that it will happen one way or another, whether we take the easier route and do it proactively or whether we do it because our healthcare system is, is, is just crumbling under the burden of chronic disease. Because the, the elephant in the room that nobody want, mentioned during the healthcare debate this year is that the healthcare debate was focused on insurance, health insurance. But health insurance is important, and we need to have that discussion. But we also need to recognize that health insurance is not the same as health care. Health insurance is a method of paying for health care, okay? And the important point that nobody talked about is that there is no method of paying for health care that will be sufficient in the face of rising rates of chronic disease as we're seeing now, period. doesn't matter. Government is paying for it. Corporations are paying for it or individuals are paying for it. Nobody will be able to afford treating chronic disease when one in two Americans has chronic disease now, today. One in four Americans has multiple chronic diseases. Almost 30% of kids have a chronic disease, which is up from just 13% in 1994, not very long ago. I mean, I was in college then. It was in my adult life. That's 25 years ago. Um, this this dr dramatic increase in the prevalence of chronic disease is going to sink our healthcare system unless we take action to prevent and reverse it. That's just a reality. And, you know, we can either see that and accept it and take action, or we can wait for the, the time when we're in a place where we have no other choice. I would prefer the former, and that's part of why, the reason that I wrote this book, but we're going to get there one way or another. That's, that's the key point. So I had almost the op, like the, the flip side of that coin from, from Stacy's question, which was the conventional medicine doctors who are really stuck in that model. And I think my understanding is part of it is how our healthcare system is set up where, you know, insurance companies have a fair bit of say in terms of what's covered and what's not covered. So doctors don't have uh, yeah. as much autonomy as, as they need to be able to actually dig deeper when a patient comes in um, or spend more time with them, for example. Um, but I was sort of, my question was the flip side of that, of how, um, what is the elevator pitch for a uh, conventional practitioner to start changing their practice to be more of a sort of root cause focus? Well, um, there are lots of ways to look at that too. So one is that um, doctors, many doctors now are extremely dissatisfied. Um, I, I just uh, got back from San Diego where I was doing a presentation at the Academy of Integrative Health and, and Medicine conference. And, uh, you know, th these are a group of people who are already, you know, have seen the limitations of conventional medicine and, and have taken some action to, um, you know, step outside of that model. And yet I, I asked them uh, these same questions I'm, I'm about to share with you, uh, the responses of conventional doctors, and they, they were largely the same, actually. They track pretty closely. So 63% of doctors are pessimistic about the future of medicine. 14% feel they have the time they need to provide the highest standard of care. 
That's not half, a very high percentage. That's not a high percentage. 49%, almost half, often or always experience feelings of burnout. 54% rate their morale as somewhat or very negative, and half have thought of quitting medicine. So doctors are not happy, right? They're, they're, they're dissatisfied. Uh, the average primary care visit in the U.S. now is between 8 and 12 minutes. The uh, average number of patients that a doctor, primary care practitioner has on their patient roster is 2,500. That's insane. It's, you know, no, I, I don't know any doctor who thinks that's a really good idea um, and feels satisfied or rewarded or feels like they're truly helping patients in the way that they want to do that. And so um, from a practitioner perspective, when the biggest pitch for this model that I'm advocating is a much more meaningful and rewarding way of practicing medicine. And for many people getting, you know, reclaiming that original purpose that they, that drove, that pushed them into medicine in the first place to truly transform people's lives, to have this, the satisfaction at the end of the day that comes from knowing that you really did make a big difference in the patient's life. And you, you know, uh, you know, that, that you're, you're putting them on a path that's going to lead to real transformation instead of just, you know, uh, handing out a drug and, and knowing that they're going to be back soon. Um, so I, I think that's the, the biggest, that's the thing that resonates most with, with most, um, doctors that are still working in, in that conventional model. Um, you know, doctors, uh, in 1970, earned the same wage in inflation-adjusted dollars as doctors today, and yet today's doctor sees twice the number of patients. So there's just been a steady increase in this the number of patients seen on a day-to-day basis, and it's led to this kind of factory system of medicine that isn't serving patients, but it also isn't serving doctors. And just about any doctor you talk to will, will agree with that. I mean, there may be some disagreement about what the solution is, but there's not very much controversy about that. So I don't, um, I don't want to get super embroiled in politics, but at the same time, I'm going to ask a, you know, policy related question, which is um, when so much of this is sort of dictated from government policies what can people or doctors do to help affect change? And what kind of policy changes do we need to see to be able to uh, get to a point where uh, patients with chronic illness are um, getting real meaningful uh, medical intervention that's actually helping them to reverse or prevent the progressive decline, right? that might normally be associated with their chronic illnesses um, and also give people who are currently healthy uh, the information that they need to maintain that. Yeah. Well, um, we could talk for several hours about that. <laughs> um, it's a very complex problem. If, if we use an analogy, the, the disease that our healthcare system is suffering from is multifactorial. It's, cro- it's chronic and it's complex and it's, <laughs> it's, it's multi-system, you know, just like most chronic diseases. So um, there we, we have a problem with misaligned incentives. You know, insurance companies, for example, benefit when uh, – 
healthcare expenditures rise. So that that's that's a disconnect, right? Because uh, it's not in the insurance company's best interest to to limit expenditures because they don't profit as much in that scenario. So that's why we have this continually growing, bloated uh, system because it's it's that's the incentive for the insurance companies. Two thirds of medical education are uh, medical studies are sponsored by pharmaceutical companies. Uh, we have. Uh, broken payment models. We've got, uh, excuse me, two thirds of medical research. I, I said education. I just want to make that clear. Um, you know, we have a medical paradigm, as I mentioned, that doesn't fit the challenge that we face now, which is chronic disease. And we've got massive conflicts of interest all through through medicine. So, I don't claim to have the answers to all of these problems, but. Uh, I think that the change needs to happen on both a local level. It will start in a kind of grassroots way with um, local clinics like mine embracing this approach and people having a lot of success with it. And then we have other examples on a bigger scale like Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine, which was started by um, Dr. Mark Hyman, a pioneer in functional medicine. Cleveland Clinic is a prestigious institution that's known all over the world uh, to be on the forefront of the newest trends in medicine. And they have invested tens of millions of dollars in the Center for Functional Medicine. When it opened, it was small and they quickly outgrew that space. And now they're in a, in the, they've taken over the entire second floor of the Glickman Tower, uh, which, which also houses Cleveland Clinic Urology and Cardiology, which are uh, number one in the world. And they've got a wait list of 2,600 patients from nine countries around the world. And, and they've grown to uh, 16 practitioners and over 50 employees in, in, by, by the end of this year. So that's a phenomenal success story, and it's getting a lot of attention. And we have primary care groups like Iora Health, which is a, a group at, based in the Rocky Mountain area, and they're reversing type 2 diabetes using health coaches. Um, so we're seeing a lot of these successful examples pop up. And then, uh, you know, I think the change will be, quite frankly, slowest to happen on the federal level because there, there's the, the enormous weight of that bureaucracy and the divisive political climate that we find ourselves in today and the fact that, as I mentioned, we're not even having the right conversation yet. You know, we're still preoccupied with with um, the, the health insurance debate, which is, again, important. I don't mean to diminish the importance of that, but what we what I don't think people either haven't realized or haven't been willing to admit that that's in some way, I mean, that, that that's the tip of the iceberg, really. It's the, it's the tip that we see, but what we're not acknowledging is that there's no method of paying for care that will be adequate in the face of rising rates of chronic disease like we're seeing. And so... Eventually, that recognition will come, and when it does, um, I want to go back to something I was the example I gave earlier with um, the patient who goes into the doctor hypothetically with high cholesterol, and then is assigned a health coach and a gym membership and a, and a, and a trainer, and that's paid for. That might seem like a pipe dream and and ridiculous, and and it is from the perspective of our current system. But let me tell you why that's not actually so far-fetched and why that would be probably far more cost-effective than our current method. If you think about type 2 diabetes, uh, which now we now know 100 million Americans have either prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, and 88% of those with prediabetes don't even know they have it. 
And the average amount of time it takes for a, a person with type two diabetes to or for with prediabetes to progress to full fledged type two diabetes is just five years. So without intervention, in a very short period of time, we're going to be in in very 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 big trouble, uh, to put it lightly. And because it costs fourteen thousand dollars a year to treat a single patient with type two diabetes, now those costs are often not apparent to consume, you know, to, to patients because the healthcare system is paying for many of those costs. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not being incurred and paid for somewhere by somebody. Uh, and it doesn't even mean that the patient isn't paying for them indirectly in the form of insurance premiums and taxes and, and uh, other costs. So imagine a hypothetical patient that is diagnosed with type 2 diabetes at age 40, and that's totally plausible. I mean, the, the age of diagnosis is dropping more and more every year. We have kids 8 years old being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Um, so they're, they're uh, diagnosed at 40, and let's say they live until 85 years old, which is also plausible given our heroic medical technology <laughs> that can keep people alive for a lot longer than they typically would otherwise live. So that's a cost of $630,000 to the healthcare system for that single patient with that single disease. But of course, they won't just have that single disease. They'll have other diseases and comorbidities. They might at some point um, not be able to work because of neuropathy or other complications of diabetes. So they'll have lost wages, lost productivity. We could easily estimate that number to be more like a million dollars over the course of half of that patient's lifetime. So let's imagine that that patient instead went to a doctor when they when he or she still had prediabetes. They they caught it, and then they spent let's just say five thousand dollars. That would cover lots of health coaching. It would cover maybe a month or two of, of groceries. It would cover even some you know some some initial testing and a, uh, uh, six months of a gym membership and a personal trainer. Let's even say ten thousand dollars. Let's be just generous. Um, we could spend $10,000, the healthcare system could spend $10,000 doing that for six months. We could reverse prediabetes, take them back to normal blood sugar levels so that they would never progress to full-fledged type 2 diabetes, and, and then thus saving uh, the healthcare system uh, $990,000 over the course of that patient's lifetime. And this is, you know, this is not... This is 100% plausible. If a patient comes to me with prediabetes, I'm virtually certain if they fall, if they carry through with the recommendations I make that I can reverse that and so that they don't progress to type 2 diabetes. It's not type 2 diabetes is a totally preventable condition. So I think we just need to step back and 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 rearrange our priorities and and we would see that if we did that, we could not only would it not be more expensive to have the kind of healthcare system that I just described? It would be far, far less expensive over time. I, I love that math because I think that when it comes to explaining just how expensive chronic disease is on the economy in general, like that's, that's not even thinking about indirect healthcare costs like um, lost wages from uh, sick days um, yeah. or inability to hold down a job and how that can affect an individual's ability to then, you know, purchase items, right, and and feed the economy that way. And to be able to just go like, look, this, this 
when you look at the math, it's a real no-brainer if we can actually give people the resources they need to make these changes, give them um, the guidance to make these changes, and then follow up and and continue to tinker with a with a doctor who is also seeing a much reasonable number of patients so they can actually have a rapport with each one of them, how much that could change. Uh, think about how much that could even just change, not just the health, you know, the burden on the healthcare system, but how much that could change individuals' lives and how much that could change productivity in the workplace and how much that could change um, family dynamics, right? And mental health. And like it, it starts to, it starts to balloon, not out of control, but in control, right? And it, it yeah. becomes this, this, you know, here we've got this, this one solution to this one problem that could actually, as an aside, as a, as a side effect, provide solutions to multiple issues that we're facing as a country that are going to need solutions in the not too distant future. That's right. That's very well said. It's a virtuous cycle rather than a vicious cycle. And there are a lot of parallels with functional medicine that are <laughs> interesting because in functional medicine, you often see unrelated complaints improve spontaneously. That's your side effect. So for example, if I treat a patient with gut issues, their skin problem clears up and they start thinking more clearly because of this connection between the gut and the brain and the skin. Um, so you have these positive side effects and that's the same thing that you were just saying Sarah, where if we make these changes, it's not only going to reduce the, the cost of care for individuals and organizations and, and the government, it's not only going to reduce the, the burden of chronic disease and improve people's quality of life directly because of that, but it's going to have uh, several ripple effects that will, you know, everything from, you know, in, improving people's relationships and, and, and family dynamics because they don't have the stress and burden of, of chronic disease. Um, which can really be a tremendous burden on families. It's going to, you know, improve uh, the health of communities because people will, more people will be employed and able to work in a productive way. Uh, and it's going to improve the health of our society at large because we won't be spending up to 25% by some estimates, if you include indirect costs of our GDP on healthcare expenditures. Um, we spend $3.2 trillion a year now on healthcare. Uh, that's $10,000 for every man, woman, and child in the U.S., and a third of the median personal income. So this is a substantial drain on all of our resources, uh, financial and otherwise. So um, that's you know part of what I'm hoping to do with this book is just to raise awareness about how significantly this is impacting us because I think – for better or for worse, human beings are very adaptable. So we, we become accustomed to what our you know, new normal is. But as I've said before, in other contexts, there's a very big difference between what's common and what's normal. It's not normal for humans to have chronic disease. We've become accustomed to it because everybody we know you know, everyone is not is 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 touched by it, either themselves or a family member or a friend or their children. Um, but it's not normal, and we need to stop accepting chronic disease as if it's just uh, our fate. And we need to get to to, to get back to uh, the understanding that health is our birthright, and health is the natural state for human beings if we do the right things and um, have access to the right kind of care. I don't know. Sure. If you're 
Yeah. Again. Yes. Here, here, here as well. I don't know if you ever heard um, Angela Coppola's uh, tagline, we're not broken by default. It was also one of the things that I originally um, remember like hearing and, and learning um, when I first started this whole ancestral lifestyle approach. And it was one of the things that really stuck with me. And even in kind of Lauren Cordain's book, when he talked about syndrome X and like all of the stuff being preventable, the way that you're talking about it with diabetes, I think um, that that concept is one that was so powerful for me as someone who was morbidly obese and experiencing so many of the health conditions. And, you know, Sarah and I both were on all kinds of medications and being told that it's normal for, you know, um, high blood pressure and acid reflux and sleep apnea and all these things. And then suddenly when you remove inflammation, poof, all that stuff is gone. And it's like, well, no, it's not normal. It's common. And so this, this idea of teaching others, teaching those of conventional approach that while they might see it all the time, that doesn't mean that it's okay. And that's not to say that a hundred percent of people are going to see a hundred percent improvement from just food and lifestyle. I, you know, I do want to caveat that, that there are some people, um, some of our listeners, you know, when we go to book signings or whatever, they're like, I'm doing all these things and I'm just not, you know, getting where I want to be. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's just not enough. And I don't think any of us are advocating that, you know, that's, the entirety. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that that is something that could be so powerful if the first question wasn't, you know, well, what medications are you allergic to? So I know what to prescribe you. You know, it's like, well, let's look at the let's look at the root cause. And, you know, what's I think fascinating for me. I, I love that you brought up the statistics because I loved the the numbers and the information in um, the chapter six of your book talking about how conventional medication, uh, conventional medicine has affected healthcare providers and how disillusioned or frustrated they are with the whole thing. And oh. I think, you know, that's, it's such a powerful statement when you were talking about uh, doctors being with patients an average of eight minutes. Like when you, even when we watch TV from, you know, 40, 50 years ago, there's like doctors are making house calls and, um, you know, women were giving birth at home and that was normal. And then you look at, you know, what happens today and how much more inflated costs are. And, you know, I was reminded today by going to the doctors that the first office that we went to, we went to like an urgent care because I didn't want to deal with an ER and an overinflated bill from that. And so we, yeah. went, we went to an urgent care place that would have an x-ray machine. And the first one that we went to, I have good health insurance. Like I have a, you yeah. know, a, a nine to five job with, a, you know, a large corporate health care plan. And the lady was like, oh, we don't take this insurance. You can pay out of pocket. And I was like, why would I, why would I have insurance if I was going right. to pay out of pocket? Like that's... yeah. And I, you know, I don't know if that's something that people think about because when you were talking about, well, um, insurance costs are only indicative of healthcare costs. Like, I don't know that that's something that really people have fully thought through, you know, because I think people, most people are so separated from, well, the insurance costs are associated with my company and, you know, they work with the healthcare companies and, you know, blah, 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 yada, 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 how the cheese is made, how the sausage is made actual yeah. healthcare costs. And it's, it is, you know, 
just mind blowing to think about how all of that stuff affects and is inflated. And, you know, at the same time that I'm frustrated that, you know, so, so and so won't take my insurance or, you know, such and such isn't covered. And the, you know, once I went to a hospital and the doctor who saw me wasn't in my network and I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> and, right. But at, yeah. the, but at the same time, you've got um, people who really w- like want to help or whatever. And so it's like, how do you get to, I think where um, at least America needs to be is how do you get people to understand that there's a difference between uh, maintenance and lifestyle and things that are actually preventable um, that you could work with uh knowledgeable practitioner, whether it be conventional or functional, if really they're using a full preventative lifestyle approach, it should be one in the same. But let's just say, if, you know, how do we get people to understand that it's, there are two, there are two sides to that coin. There's, there's the place that you go to when, you know, you have a broken arm and then there's the place that you go to when, you're trying to get your 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 health conditions in check so that you don't need to go on statins, which we all know isn't going to do anybody any good. But yeah, well, I think it's I mean, it's even for us, because we, we know there's a way that the system has been for as long as we've been alive. And that's the only one we know. And, and it's hard for us to envision something different. But health insurance as a model of as a method of paying for health care has not been has only been around since or or really prevalent since uh, after World War II. So there was a tax uh, thing passed at that time where uh, it was, you know, a tax break for, for companies that provided health care for employees. And that small little tax, uh, you know, legislation led to health health insurance being the primary method of paying for care. But before that, it wasn't. Um, people paid for more of their own health care. And, uh, you know, one one argument for that is that, you know, there, there are lots there's I don't actually even know where I stand on this. So, um, you know, it, it's it's such a complex and difficult issue. But there are some people who um, advocate for a system where, you know, catastrophic, you know, any anything that, uh, you know, acute stuff would be covered, whereas uh, more stuff that's related to, you know, more chronic, you know, diet, lifestyle, behavior would would not be. And I don't know if that's the right approach, but what's interesting about that is it, uh, if, if people are responsible for covering the costs of those kinds of things, then they might, there might be a different calculus, you know, in terms of, uh, what the choice is. Um, the, there's an example that in a, in a book called Catastrophic Care that I, that I included in my book where the author is doing kind of a thought experiment. He's saying, okay, so I go into the doctor and I've got high cholesterol and the doctor says, okay, you've got a choice. I could give you this statin drug and it's going to lower your cholesterol and your insurance company is going to pay for that. Um, or I can, you know, you can change your diet and exercise more. Uh, and more, you know, you're going to, you're on your own. You're, you're not only on your own in terms of the effort involved, um, and the support that you need, but you're on your own in terms of paying for all that. And that's presented to the patient as if it's an equivalent choice, right? Like as if taking a statin, even if it leads to the same reduction of, of, of a number on piece of paper, the cholesterol, 
um, you know, it's presented as if that has the same health benefit as doing, you know, exercising and eating right, which is, of course, preposterous, but, but that's the way it's presented. And if it's presented that way to the patient and the statin is reimbursed, why would they not do that? I mean, that's, that's just, comp- that's like, you know, we're hardwired to conserve energy and resources. Um, so, of course, we're going to make that choice. But I think um, that, like I said before, you know, there, there's an easier way where we, we educate patients. We spend more, more than 3% of our healthcare expenditures on public health initiatives. That's how much we spend now compared to 86% treating chronic disease. Um, we have more programs like the Cleveland Clinic. We have more books like the one that I just wrote. And, and we have more and more people who are realizing the shortcomings of uh, conventional medicine to deal with chronic illness. And, you know, over time, there, there's a growing recognition that this, uh, you know, diet, lifestyle, and behavior change are the key to preventing and reversing chronic disease. Or, like I said before, we get to a point where um, it's just simply not sustainable any longer. And the system, which is already precarious, as you pointed out, Stacey, and everybody has you know, stories like yours, um, it just starts becoming patently obvious that, that it's not going to work the way that we've been doing it. And then people are forced to find another way. And I, I really believe that when people do have to find another way, they will. You know, people are resourceful and they, uh, especially when they need to, um, you know, w- when, they, when they're on their own or they're, they're forced to, to, to go outside of that system, they, um, you know, they'll naturally find, find their way. So um, I didn't even tell you about how I waited on an MRI for my back and jumped through 5,000 hoops for insurance approval. And then I got the bill and it was something that I had to pay as part of my deductible completely out of pocket anyway. So yeah. I'm a little bit, it has nothing to do with political. It's just like I've experienced it because I have regular insurance and I'm dealing with the regular system and um, it's frustrating for sure. So I think um, not to completely disillusion people, I will just kind of give some recommendations and options for those people who are in my boat. Cause I know you and Sarah are operating in more of a, a functional approach, which I think is fantastic and the ideal place to go. I have not been able to wrap my head around that because it's not, it, my insurance is provided no matter what through my company, right? So it's like, yeah. okay, how do I yeah. make the best of the situation? Um, and also I have three boys ages seven to 12. And it's like the minute that I choose to, you know, invest all of that health dollars into an FSA account is going to be the day that all three of them break a bone all in the same month. <laughs> like it's just inevitable. So yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's why that, that system of like having, insurance for for issues like that is is should always probably be part of the picture nobody wants to be in that situation but what happens you know if you're if your kids have a stuffy you know a chronic stuffy nose is you know what's the best option there exactly yeah so i think what's been interesting i'm i'm part of kind of a, a local group here of a lot of women who are in the same kind of situation and what a lot of them are doing is um opting into most companies now offer a kind of health plan that has a really low, um, 
monthly fee, but more um, high deductibles. And it is basically contributing, let's say, dollar to dollar up to a certain amount for you to put into like this health bank. And it's a little different than FSA. And, and that plan is one that they're doing because they're a, enabled to utilize that money to any practitioner, whether they have health insurance or not, or whether they accept health insurance or not. So if you looked into a plan like this, you would be able to utilize that set aside, quote unquote, insurance money and apply it to different kinds of things like functional medicine, or even in some cases, you know, chiropractic, acupuncture, um, just natural and holistic healthcare in general. And then also, um, you can use an FSA account for things like lifestyle, like gym memberships and whatever. So there, there is on the, you know, I know we've talked a lot about on the downside and I think from, um, your, your approach in your book, trying to get more conventional doctors on board. If in the meantime, people are looking for those practitioners who will work with them on the things like taking the rock out of the shoe and chronic nose, issues and that kind of stuff, there there are ways to do that with more traditional plans, I think. And um, because, I, you know, we're not, we're just not going to change the system overnight. But like you said, when people start putting their money towards things and they be, figure out how to be resourceful and they start funding things in a different way, people start paying attention. And then maybe those practitioners who are more conventional will say, hey, I need to do what this person's doing because that's where the money is going. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the the message of the book is overwhelmingly positive. There's certainly a lot of challenges that we face, but there are already some really encouraging developments, like I mentioned earlier. And there's a lot that individuals and small groups, like you mentioned, Stacy, that can can do to to um, address their own health issues and their family's health issues without even interacting with the medical system at all. Um, I mean that's that's really where it's at, right? It's it's it's, and we haven't talked about this much on this call, but a really well-trained health coach who understands evidence-based principles of behavior change and positive psychology and motivational interviewing and a lot of techniques that have been shown to really promote long-lasting and meaningful uh, behavior change in the formation of healthy habits could probably work with like seventy percent of the population you know most even though chronic disease is common in, in many cases it's not life-threatening and doesn't even necessarily require medical intervention if the patient gets the diet lifestyle and behavior dialed in and we don't necessarily need doctors to do that uh, health coaches skilled health coaches and nutritionists can play a big role in that respect and i think that we're really underutilizing them currently and that you know that's starting to change uh it's one of the reasons i'm launching in addition to my practitioner training program a health coach training program next year because uh, there just never will be enough doctors even in in a functional kind of medicine model to address the chronic disease epidemic and the good news is that we don't need doctors to always be the person that's doing that kind of work and in fact you could argue they're not the best people to work with with patients on the level of diet, behavior, and lifestyle change, because we need doctors to keep doing doctory things, you know, like endoscopies and colonoscopies and removing cancerous tumors and uh, working within their scope of practice. But we can train pr uh, many, many more 
orders of magnitude more health coaches and nutritionists that can still make a very meaningful and, and you know significant impact on on patients' lives. I think that's an amazing positive note to end on. Um, I wanted to remind our listeners that Chris Kresser's new book is called Unconventional Medicine, Join the Revolution to Reinvent Healthcare, Reverse Chronic Disease, and Create a Practice You Love. Um, But it's definitely got tons of amazing information out there for uh, people in the medical field, but also, you know, users, so patients as well. Um, And it comes out November 7th. Please go pre-order. And Chris, thank you so much for joining us. This was a really um, fascinating conversation. I I think one that um, it's it's a topic that we don't touch on on this podcast all that often, but I think it's something that's very, very relevant to our listeners. And um, we just always love your your approach in, in everything you do. So thanks for coming and sharing that with us today. Thank you both for having me. I, I really enjoy the conversation and I, I um, yeah, just love the, the message that you guys both put out there and your, your reason and ration approach, which is, as you said, very welcome in, in, a, in a community that is not always that way. Thanks again for tuning in to The Paleo View. If you'd like to check out Chris's book, Unconventional Medicine, you can use the link in our show notes. Of course, that supports our blogs, and we sincerely appreciate that and allows this podcast to remain free of commercials for you. Um, As well, you can find him at chriscresser.com. And thank you for tuning in. We'll be back again next week. Thank you for listening to The Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. I feel like whenever we have a guest, this happens and not normally. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Or when it's the latest possible day that yeah. we can record that week's podcast <laughs> and there's no time to do any kind of makeup. Yes. Those are the two the two occasions where Skype goes up to shenanigans. I can tell you I fell in love with a stray cat and I'm feeding him. <laughs> and- Sarah, I just snorted. <laughs> You're like, you're like, I can't tell you. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what's she going to tell me? And then you're like, I'm feeding a stray <laughs> I think you've got a lot going on right now. Do you really think that adopting a stray cat's a good life choice? Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.